Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. At American Public University, we believe that higher education can unlock higher purpose. So we offer 200 modern programs for those who want to make a difference. And we believe education must adapt to students' needs. That's why we've made it accessible through online classes and flexible with monthly program starts. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. Howdy, y'all. This is the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Samson Folk. Today, a very special guest, somebody who I've been excited to have on the podcast for some time, a Toronto-based national broadcaster, a wonderful presence on Raptors Twitter in particular, and uh, Ashley Docking. How are you doing today? Hi, what a lovely introduction. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So we're here to talk basketball for the most part. It's a Raptors Mm -hmm. podcast, but... You have a history in basketball, OCAA, Defensive Player of the Year, Hall of Famer. Okay, so first thing I'm wondering, Defensive Player of the Year, you're a walk-on. That's a lot of Fred Van Vliet energy. Is, who's your comp on the Raptors? Honestly, that probably is a good comparison. I've never really thought about it that way. Um, Yeah, I think that's probably the case. When I went to college, um, I wasn't really recruited. So it was one of those things I had to just show up. And I was running back and forth from soccer to basketball because I was a dual sport athlete. And yeah, that pretty much, I guess, sums it up. I don't know if I had the same energy, like bet on myself. I was kind of just like, this is cool and I hope we win. Um, (laughs) And then competitiveness kind of took over on the court. But yeah, I think maybe that's it. And then maybe a little bit of like Kyle's mischievous nature. Mixed in Okay, there. you had some grift to your game. You're a bit of a grifter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just to my game, though, not to my personality as a whole. Yeah. What's the, what was the ultimate grift you pulled off in your basketball career? Oh, my gosh. I have... Oh. Honestly, I probably was just getting in the way. I was probably just getting in the way. And like kind of Kyle, actually, I used to cover a lot of bigger players in the post, uh, just be a little bit feisty, just be super annoying. My favorite thing to do is just kind of pull the chair out from under them when they're trying to post you up and they have all their weight and momentum backwards and just like a little sidestep. And uh, all of a sudden they're on their ass and you're back the other way. <laughs> Ask Al Siakam what had a tough time with you if you're a chair puller. He <laughs> yeah. hates that move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so... You're a good defender, one of the best in your era. And uh, so we're talking about defense. My era. Well, <laughs> oh my, the late 1900s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, sorry, that's, uh, that's not meant in any way. But 
somebody who has esteem as a defender like yourself, the Raptors in the past four games and eight and three over the past 11, turning it around, getting to over 500, the defense has come around in a big way, particularly against the Bucks, one of the better offenses in the league. Is there anything you're seeing from the start of the season to now defensively that makes you think, okay, that's why it's working? I think just comfortability. Um, I think more than any time before, everyone who's not a professional basketball player can kind of relate to maybe missing a routine or missing things that you're, you've become accustomed to. And what we've seen with Nick Nurse is that he doesn't really have a routine in terms of his rotation specifically. He's someone who um, will ride the hot hands. He'll try various rotations at any given time. There really is no predicting what he's willing to do on any given night. Um, and I think that those are difficult circumstances to play under. Even if you are familiar with him, even if you did win a championship with him a couple years ago, it's still something that can throw you off your game, especially if you're personally having struggles because you have to adapt to his game plan. You have to be a team player. You have to be taking care of your own business. And so a lot lot of that piles up on top of the fact that this Raptors team was not known to be an offensive juggernaut. And I don't think their 86 point win over Minnesota is going to be changing anyone's opinions anytime soon, but it's a lot to focus on. So what's their identity? We're defensively minded, but we need to score. So who's going to be responsible for that? And then taking on that responsibility without being a black hole when the ball gets to you. Um, so I think it's more of just juggling those responsibilities and maybe the team as a whole has gotten used to it together. And you tell me what you think about this. This is my theory that sometimes it just takes a while to trust people to be able to do their job. And that's not a slight on how you feel about them as teammates or whether you hate being on a team with them. It's a matter of wanting to help them so they don't kind of get thrown under the bus, if that makes sense. But when you do that and when you help too much and when you overcompensate for other people, even if it's just your eyes on someone else's matchup, you put yourself in a vulnerable position for easy backdoor cuts, for losing a man in the weak side corner for a skip pass. And then that makes you as a defender look really, really bad. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's, there was a quote really early on in the season from Marcus Saul. Related to the Lakers, obviously, but he was saying about how there's little micro, minute things you have to get adjusted to when you're guarding with four new players. And, you know, it could be more than four, depending on how many lineups you're in. But Marcus always talking about some guys take a little bit step in in how they dig and just recognizing when what tells your defenders, your teammates have defensively that you can link up to. And so you know how they're going to respond. Aaron Baines in particular coming into a lineup that guarded with five guys on the string, the string was breaking quite a lot early on in the season. And even just last night against the 76ers, I think, on a string is much better. The zone, the spacing they provide as a defense, much better. And I think that's a great point you make, is that getting comfortable is a big part of being good at defense because they do have the defensive talent. So my question is, though... <laughs> Chris Finch, talk about getting comfortable. They just oh lost gosh. an assistant coach. What the heck? Chris Finch is gone. I He's, didn't know uh, you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not since, I think somebody said it was 1991, Pat Riley. That's how long mm -hmm. it's been since that's happened. Chris Finch, uh, noted offensive whiz, came over from New Orleans, ran a lot of blade action for 
Zion for Brandon Ingram. A lot of people thought that might apply to Pascal and OG, but hey, he's gone now and he's with Minnesota. What do you make of all that? I think Ryan Saunders is pissed. That's what I make of all of it. I make of it that, man, the Timberwolves were like in Chris's DMs. He was happy. He was in a loving relationship. Things were a little rough to start off with, but they were working through it, you know? Both families were invested. Everyone wanted them to make it to the altar. And all of a sudden, Minnesota comes over, just showing him something that the Raptors can't offer him right now. And look at him. At the first taste, he bites the forbidden in fruit, Chris. (laughs) It was one of those things where it was completely unexpected. Um, But, you know, good for him. Some people are are a little bit upset that some of the Minnesota Timberwolves coaches, assistant coaches, didn't get a look, at least even for an interim possibility. But as I understand it, um, Chris Finch interviewed before Saunders was hired. So they had an existing relationship, but I know the conversation is going to be um, around basically our black coaches, our minority coaches getting a fair shake after, you know, Chris gets brought in mid season in a pretty unusual situation. Um, There is validity to that conversation a thousand percent, but when it comes to Chris specifically, I think, and the way he impacted the Raptors' offense, uh, I think there's no doubt that you see the difference this year. I mean, it doesn't feel as forced. It doesn't feel like somebody needs to whip up something in the kitchen and, like, serve it on a platter. Any given day and time, anyone can go off. And it always feels, maybe you feel this way too, it always feels like it's in the flow of the offense this year. It doesn't really feel like someone's kind of standing alone on the island and everyone's like, okay, well, we're going to do something. It feels a little bit more organic. Yeah, there's more dispersed pick and roll possessions. There's a lot more weak side action, which is really nice. And oh, weak side action is the underrated thing in any NBA <laughs> offense. You have to preoccupy guys. And yeah, the half-court offense, per the metrics, was much better. And even with Pascal Siakam struggling, they... And he's been much better as of late. The team's still pushing ahead. Kyle Lowry missing games. And in incorporating new guys like DeAndre Bembry, Stanley Johnson, who played somewhat last year, but not very much. Bigger role this year. Well, maybe not recently, but still. <laughs> and uh, Yuto Watanabe, who everybody loves and adores. Lots of stuff going on. But Chris Finch is gone now. Do you think this will have an effect throughout the season into the playoffs or do you think they kind of stole the playbook and they're keeping (laughs) it for themselves now any thoughts probably a little bit of both it's not as though they got hit with the men in black like memories I don't remember what it's called the memory eraser that they used to use so they still have those fundamentals in place and unless they're really petty then they're going to continue to operate under um the the format that Chris may have provided them but listen they still have a ton of smart coaches Nick Nurse is not an idiot and that's almost proven more so when you see the people that he brings in to support him there seems to be no ego on this coaching staff it seems that everybody has a voice so although the expertise of Chris Finch might not be there anymore um, who knows who gets the opportunity now to have a bigger voice step up in his place and maybe even make this Raptors offering on any given night a little bit more dynamic yeah and I mean you can keep plays coaches steal plays all the time I mean Nate Bjorkren (laughs) 
in Indiana was running so much Raptor stuff that a fantastic journalist out there, Caitlin Cooper, was writing a bunch of articles about the Indiana Raptors because they were so <laughs> defensively and offensively. Yeah. And yeah, so a, a pillar of the Raptors defense this year and many years, and for perhaps maybe the first time, an all-star, Fred Van Vliet, okay, he's had an immense year, the pick-and-roll manipulation, significantly better than it was at any point in his career. He's bumping up the three-point numbers, and both in attempts and in makes. And defensively, the heavy hands, the dig downs, it's, he's still a great point-of-attack defender, very help-oriented as well, smart, diligent, talented, bet on yourself. <laughs> Anything he's, else? Yeah. Do you want to make my dating profile for me? Because <laughs> explanations about people like that, I'll be married in a month. <laughs> Good. We'll figure something out. But Bradley Beal, Zach Levine, Trey mm-hmm. Young, guys with bigger offensive numbers. They're all in competition. Beal obviously in. But what do you think about his all-star candidacy? It's, it's tough. It's legitimate. I mean, I don't even think that you can, I think that's objectively true. I think what he's been able to do this year has been very impressive. And we know that his trajectory has been on a steady increase since the moment that he arrived. And there's so many good players that just because they're having good seasons on teams that not a lot of people watch because they're not the hot ticket in town, they're not the Nets, they're not the Lakers, right? They're not even the Suns, you know, (laughs) they're not teams that people kind of seek out because the narrative around them is just so exciting. So they still, those players are still going to garner votes as well and they deserve them too. The problem is, and it always has been with the Raptors aside from when Kawhi was here, is that they're all going to poach votes from each other, right? It was DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, um, Chris Bosh before them, those Vince Carter before him, those were the perennial all-stars. Kyle Lowry has remained in that conversation. But then when you're talking about secondary or tertiary options from the Raptors, it's like, well, is it Pascal Siakam? You know, most improved player, tough bubble situation, slow start to the season, but found his way. Or is it Fred Vliet, who, Fred Van Vliet, who hasn't need to had really a redemption storyline. His whole career has been uh, kind of, Uh, And I told you so to anyone who doubted him. So I think the problem is that you value different things when you're voting for these all-star roles if you're a coach. And that's going to determine exactly who it is that you vote for because they all offer something so different and their narratives are all so different too. Okay, so you, you're a champion. (laughs) I am a a multiple-time champion. That's right. (laughs) And uh, a person with significant defensive acumen. And we can, we can put that on your profile as well. But <laughs> Fred Van Vliet versus Trey Young versus Zach Levine, what do you value? Are you looking at Fred Van Vliet's defensive output and saying he's the guy, not Zach, not Trey, for example? That's not fair, though, because the NBA doesn't <laughs> value defense as much as I do. You've already kind of established my bias towards that facet of the game. I love Kyle Lowry more than anything for the charges that he takes. I love Kyle Lowry for kind of sliding in the little tootsie slide, taking it right in the chest from a guy who outweighs him by 60 pounds, and then him getting up and smiling. The reason, and I hope that voters are listening, because I know that your podcast is probably very popular. I know that voters are listening and saying, hey, guess who made the All-Star Game good in Chicago? Kyle Lowry. 
oh, right. He was having so much fun. He was taking charges during All-Star Games. He was being feisty with the ball. Who does those things? So I think that if there's people that maybe have like a little bit more of a recency bias plus the legacy vote, you're voting in Kyle Lowry. I do value defense. So if you're talking about Fred Van Vliet defensively versus the other two players that you mentioned, for sure. But they have been electric offensively all the time. Right? Fred Van Vliet had his amazing game where he scored 50 plus points. So good. But then you have Chris Boucher once in a while lighting it up. You have Norman Powell taking over once in a while. You have Siakam. You have Kyle Lowry kind of pulling everyone over the finish line once in a while. So it kind of diminishes, quote unquote, in the grand scheme of things, Fred Van Vliet's impact if you're not watching the games. Because sometimes the box score and even the advanced statistics don't tell the story of the small moments that can change the pace in the course of the game, right? Like you could see a Fred Van Vliet line and I'm just making this up arbitrarily. Just say he hasn't had a good night. He's like five of 10 from the field. He's hit one, three out of the four that he's taken and he has one steal. But what if that steal was at a pivotal time in the fourth quarter, four minutes left and led to a fast break the other way. And then the Raptors went on an eight point run. Is he going to get credit for that? Or is it going to be the eight point run that we're talking about? So it becomes hard to kind of quantify, in my opinion, some of those pivotal moments. Yeah, that's a good point. Even last night, the 11-0 run that got them back into the game at the end of the third quarter that I think a lot of people remember for Chris Boucher, the center <laughs> coming off a flare screen above the break and hitting a three, which is insane. Yeah. A no-doubter, too. Yeah. But Fred Van Vliet, he started that run. It was his defensive intensity. It was his ability to push through transition, pseudo-transition, to create opportunities. And yeah, so in summation, it seems like it's tough. They're all very good players. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's follow this thread then. Chris Boucher. Yeah. What have you thought of his year? I mean, it's, it's kind of a great thing. It's not bet on yourself to the same degree, but there's aspects of it. It's, it's a huge story to cheer for and by all accounts a great guy as well and the offensive punch he packs is uh significant for the raptors a thousand percent and you do have the homegrown talent aspect i think sometimes raptors 905 can kind of get teased a little bit about the fact that they always have like their one like mississauga or brampton man on the team it's like we even have nick stauskas this year right he's playing with 905 i believe so chris boucher being a homegrown talent a canadian kid who really had to claw his way to where he's been he's been rewarded with a nice chunk of change and then given leeway to prove himself and i mean aaron baines's touch around the rim has definitely opened the door a little bit for uh, boucher but hey listen Baines and Boucher have actually played very well together in limited minutes so like I know it's easy to slag Baines but there are some things that he brings that Boucher doesn't and to you know your point in the email that you sent me it's just size and stature Boucher is like a, a slim man <laughs> you know he's got the physique of like a, a Kevin Durant he's tall he's lean he can shoot he can move he's mobile so the biggest problem is that using him as a traditional center in a more modern style of play is fine. But last night, if you're talking about playing him against Joel Embiid, like, okay, that's like someone trying to bud me in line for ice cream. Like, I will body you. I don't care who you are. <laughs> you, sometimes you're just going to lose that fight. And so that's why, you know, Bane's role changed and they kind of got away from small ball early um, because Boucher and whoever else they had on the floor weren't, wasn't physically able to stop him. 
But I don't know. Him packing on the pounds, I think he's going to need to get a little bit bigger. But you have to also understand that when you grow in size, sometimes that can affect your mobility. And his mobility is one of the things that makes him so amazing, running out to block people at the three-point line, um, you know, just getting his shot off quickly. So being able to switch um, depending on what they're running on defense. Um, so there's always pros and cons to everything. Yeah. Defensive playmaking is a huge factor in his game. As far as being able to block three-point shots, or he's also a guy when he blocks shots at the rim. I know Dwight Howard has been famous for it for his whole career. He blocks them out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Shea keeps them in play, and the yeah. Raptors thrive on transition. So that's really important. What do you make of the uh, the trebuchet thing? Because he his shot looks like a trebuchet, like a medieval siege weapon. A what? A trebuchet. You know, it's like a catapult, <laughs> except it has like. The, the thing rope? that throws the fireballs over the yes, wall of basically. the castle, the initial yeah. attack. Yes. Um, <laughs> Medieval siege weapon. I, first of all, I, didn't, I wasn't a history major, so that's new to me that that's the name of it. Um, obviously, I thought you were just making some kind of reference to combining a three-point shot, a tray, with Boucher, so it obviously is perfect. I don't know. I'm on board. I want it tattooed on my back, yeah. all the way across shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> and I want exactly. it fi- on fire like Guy Fieri. Yes. Are there <laughs> any uh, other allegories for players that you think their game resembles something in medieval or modern life? <sighs> okay, okay. Let's see. Maybe like if we're talking about a bayonet. Okay. You know, the spear on the end of a, a gun, obviously. Like back in the day, you could only get like one shot off because you needed to reload with a bullet, gunpowder, packing it in. Like it's not an effective way to do battle. <laughs> but I feel like maybe like Kyle Lowry would be that way. He's like, okay, cool. You have one chance to hit me from long range. Doosh, ducks it. And then he's like ready to go hand-to-hand combat with you because that's just like force of will at that stage. <laughs> Does that make that's, sense? Yeah, that's a pretty good one. A lot of people refer to, yeah, Lou Dort as a fire hydrant is like a good one. Uh, What? Immovable. Like, did you ever kick a fire hydrant as a kid? Like, not. Absolutely not. Did you? (laughs) I'm going to break my foot. (laughs) Maybe, you know, if we're talking about your basketball legacy, maybe many people felt that way about you. The big big women who come into the post, they're trying to dominate, (laughs) and they're like, this is a fire hydrant. Was your jersey red? Well, one of our jerseys was, we actually did like um, replicas of the women's Yukon jerseys. We had three different kinds. Very exciting. Um, better. I thought when you were talking about fire hydrant, like all I'm thinking of Dort is when he's defending LeBron James and his hands just like waving in his face the whole time. I was like, oh, when like something, the water main like breaks and people are like going crazy in the street, <laughs> like that kind of beautiful, hectic nature. Um, okay. So I was a bit thrown off. I don't know. Like. Dang, that's so good. That's such a good question. Who would be? I guess it's kind of. I guess it's kind of unfair to ask who would be like a bow and arrow of some kind because you just think of Jamal Murray immediately. Um, The ranged weapon it allowed humanity to attack all at once without endangering a single person. Like if they want to kill a lion, except for the victims. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're right. Sorry for for hunting. For hunting, oh, okay, 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 okay. which also, you know, that's taboo for some people as well. But if yeah. a lion comes into camp, maybe everybody would have to pile on to get it out of there. But you could just go sit up and everybody shoots arrows at the same time. You protect everybody. So the ranged weapon is uh, very good to protect the whole. 
So who's, whose career has been longer because of three-point shooting? I think they'd be the bow and arrow. There's the sustenance and the potency of the three-point shot, the, the arrow as it were. I mean, if we're talking like recency with the Raptors, the thing that I think of the most is like Marc Gasol versus Serge Ibaka and the way that they left town. I mean, you cannot, you cannot, I repeat, you cannot discount Marc Gasol's contribution to the Raptors NBA title. That is something that is just set in stone, point blank period. But the way the narrative went after that, Marc Gasol could not necessarily provide what the Raptors needed offensively um, at any given time. He basically like the well ran dry to a certain degree. Um, but Serge Ibaka, regardless of his other flaws, him being able to have the three point upside to drop maybe two threes in succession or something like that and give Toronto the boost that, especially for a team who struggles creating offense at times. Um, I think maybe that would be a more recent example of like how that really helped the narrative surrounding Serge and his value. Serge is just a great example of a guy who's built himself up throughout his career. He started as just a shot blocker, an athletic guy. He's biting the toy in the slam dunk contest. Now he is one of the best mid-range release valves in the league. He Mm -hmm. is a smart positional defender who still has some defensive playmaking pop and a little bit of tough looks in the pick and roll for him defensively. And he's a, a fashion mogul. And a chef. I mean, he, he's really built himself out. He's done a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about chef. He cooks, for sure. <laughs> he cooks. He cooks. Because under that, um, under that uh, spectrum of qualifications, we're all chefs. I actually have two restaurants opening up. I'm a franchiser. Um, but, yeah, I think Serge is really fantastic. I think that he's somebody that really fans miss a ton and I wonder your opinion on this I'm like so entrenched in you know Raptors fandom just because of the jobs that I've held specifically have really made me focus on the Toronto Raptors 905 but it really feels that whether or not you were this like lovable person before you got here or not you kind of just turn into that or you adapt to allow people to love you on a grander scale? Does that make sense? Like, I know that there's a lot of fan bases that really hate some of their players, and I really just don't see that as much here. Sure, they'll talk a little shit. I don't know if I could say that, but I just did. They'll talk a little shit on Twitter, and, like, they'll slag, and I know it was kind of unfair how Pascal Siakam got treated. Not kind of unfair. It was really mean-spirited how he got treated after the bubble, but for the majority of the people that you see kind of put on a Raptors uniform, people are just like begging to fall in love with them. You almost have to give someone a reason to not like you. Yeah, I agree. Totally. It's a special market, especially for the foundational fans. There's, mm-hmm. there's fans that have come on later that are maybe more attached to expedient type of fandom, which I would assume there's some overlap between the people who were extremely rude and in some cases extremely racist towards Pascal Siakam yeah. and people who come on later and are just like, cake, it's a championship team. Give me what I want. <laughs> but you see markets like Toronto yeah. or markets like Sacramento that they love their players, regardless role player, 13th man to starter, all-star, whatever. DeAndre Bembry, Udo Watanabe, Stanley Johnson. I mean, the defenders three, they're so popular for <laughs> players who occupy fringe rotation spots. Although Bembry, I think, is leapfrogged. And even just a guy like Malcolm Miller, who I was a huge fan of his game and 
he, he had a special place with Raptors fans as well, like from a Dishes and Dimes podcast appearance that people are thankful for and just stuff like that. It's a, it's a special market, and I'm glad players get to come and experience it. I'll be happier once they get to experience it in Toronto, not Tampa Bay. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's intriguing to me, and it's, it's nice to see players treated with that type of affection. Yeah, I think, you know, the Raptors as a whole have done a good job as an organization, whether or not the fans embrace the players, which you've kind of outlined that they already do. But I know that a couple years ago, the Toronto Raptors made a pointed effort to make sure that their fringe players, their intermediary players really felt comfortable because in the beast that is the NBA, it's super easy to get left behind, right? The whole business in itself is what have you done for me lately? You're a cool person, but what are you doing on the floor? Yeah, we love your community initiatives, but how's your efficiency when you get minimal minutes? And the Toronto Raptors um, internally uh, an initiative led by Shelby Weaver made sure that the players who kind of were past their rookie deal, the two to four or five year players um, were really given special attention so that they can feel comfortable. First of all, in a country that they do not belong to, that they're not from. So they're immigrants basically here. They don't really know anyone. They don't know the lay of the land. Maybe the weather is super different. Um, maybe they're not getting a ton of minutes just based on the hierarchy, but doing a good job to really make sure that they're incorporated into the system. And I truly believe that that is one of the reasons why we have seen the ascension of players like Fred VanVleet, of players like Norman Powell, Jakob Pertl when he was here, DeLon Wright when he was here. All of those guys, despite being shuttled back and forth from Raptors to 905, um, I really believe that they were told and made to feel that they were an intrinsic part of the team's fabric. And I think that that stability has really paid dividends on the court. That's one of my favorite progressions of the Raptors organization. And as you talk about Shelby Weaver, fantastic job. But the NBA at large, too, is taking away the silly stigma that existed for the G League, the D League earlier on. And Masai was pivotal in that, really making it a main focus of the Raptors organization to say, these are reps. This isn't Mm -hmm. because players used to be scared that if they went down to the D league, they were accepting that they were that quality of player and that was tainted them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And that tainted them to the rest of the league that if you had a trip down to the D league, you weren't NBA material. And now a trip down to the, what is the G league now? Malachi Flynn saying, I want to go to the bubble. Getting called back. Stanley Johnson. Saying I want to go. Yeah. And just mm-hmm. to, to get reps to improve their game. And that's, that's one of the coolest things that the Raptors have done among, you know, being the first team to win outside of the States. But, well, I guess they basically had the, the only, only opportunity. One-on-one, <laughs> <laughs> one, baby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but, let's uh, discount it. No, you're absolutely right, though. Although it is kind of interesting. So my first two years when I came back from Edmonton, I was working out West for a year um, with the Edmonton Oilers actually. But when I came back, I worked as the sideline reporter for Raptors 905 in their inaugural year. And of course you remember that the reason that the Raptors wanted to get the D league team um, was because Bruno Caboclo was floundering with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, I believe it was, which was essentially a player pool of guys who had been sent down to get reps, but the organization wasn't run by 
basically any people that, and excuse me, I'm fumbling my words here. The organization was run by someone who had no vested interest in developing a lot of the players because they did not belong to their organization. And so Bruno was sitting on the bench playing four minutes of garbage time every game. And the Raptors were sitting there like, well, what the heck? This is our new, like <laughs> Kevin Durant, right? At the time, that was the expectation of him. What are we doing? So they bring him over, he gets reps. Then, you know, Bebe becomes like a sensation just because of himself down there, his character, obviously. And then you have Fred coming down, Pascal coming down, Norm coming down, DeLon all dominating. But one of the things that's kind of interesting and is something to look for, honestly, if you have players that go down to the G League and they're not able to assert themselves on a regular basis, in my opinion, that is kind of cause for concern a little bit. All the players that I just mentioned with the Raptors and that we were talking about, including Flynn, who we just saw go off for the 905, did their business. They took care of business. And then they came back up and it was fine. Players that showed a little bit more inconsistency, Bruno and Bebe specifically, no shade, just straight facts. They had some trouble. They were kind of you didn't really know what you were going to get. Some nights were amazing and then some nights they struggled. And I think it's a good representation of success for the most part. Obviously there's people that fall between the cracks, like a Jimmer Fredette, for example, who will have 70 points in the G League and then can't seem to find his, his way in the NBA. But it's a pretty um, about what you should be looking for when you have someone who's go down to the G League. And if they can assert themselves, then chances are they're going to find a spot in the NBA. I am Lucas Negrera, baby. I, his yeah. short roll passing. He, he and Kyle Lowry had really special synergy in the pick and roll. One of my favorite things to watch. And I really wish – he's retired officially now. Actually, yeah, I, I heard. Think. And yeah. uh, Bruno's still trying to put it together. But I think that is important is you have to get used to being at the NBA level. Yes, of course. And you have to play a certain role. But you also have to be the quality of talent and of, you know, mental fortitude – to dominate at a lower level, I think. But mm -hmm. okay, so a question that's more tuned towards you: a two-sport uh -oh. athlete, multi-sport athlete, <laughs> multi-sport athlete, no big multi-sport athlete. <laughs> yeah. Okay, soccer, football, the the beautiful game, the world's most popular sport. Mm -hmm. Hakeem Olajuwon, he is famed as deriving some of his basketball talent from his soccer skill. You did both. What's the crossover for you? Where's the overlap? I think that, you know, maybe some of the footwork, maybe some of the speed changes. Um, you do a lot of that when you're on ball in soccer. You maybe lull someone to sleep and then kind of blow by. Then there's like obviously different hesitation moves and stuff like that in basketball as well. Um, I think maybe like the vision and the forethought of being able to see things develop um, and being able to kind of imagine where someone can be, that's kind of a crossover, especially for me, I was a point guard. So there has to be an element of anticipation and in soccer, you need to have that too. Um, honestly, I just really feel I played a lot of sports in my life. I pretty much played everything. Um, the biggest thing, honestly, is being able to have synergy with the people that you play with. Um, understanding their limitations, which is not a bad thing. I think a lot of people take that as a negative where it's like, that's just not what you do well. So why don't we put you in positions to be successful and focus on these other things and let someone else take over this responsibility since at the end of the day, it is a team sport. So kind of understanding the, the benefits and pitfalls of each individual that you play with is massive. Um, 
And then, you know, I was also a goalie in soccer as well as a center midfielder. Hands, you have the touch, you have the hand-eye coordination. Um, so that's going to be a factor too. That's So the through ball has always yeah. interested me. That's like Nikola Jokic finding Jamal, for example, on a cut. Yeah. Right? It's, it's like a nice little backdoor cut. It's like um, finding someone on a tight window of a pick and roll as well. Um, just being able to kind of thread it through, but also understanding what's on the back end of that pass, because are you putting your teammate in a position to be successful? It's cool if I am running a pick and roll with Aaron Baines, for example, and I'm Kyle Lowry and I give him a beautiful pass and I thread it. And I'm not saying Kyle Lowry did this to Aaron Baines a lot. I'm just using them as an example. Um, but if he's going to be able to collect the ball and turn and someone's going to be standing right in his face and he's either going to be taking a charge or there's going to be an opportunity for him to turn the ball over, well, maybe my pass needs to go to the far corner instead. Maybe it needs to be a skip pass or maybe I need to go to the wing and then move off the ball and have some backside action. Um, so that kind of vision and anticipation for your teammates as well as yourself too. It's not just about, oh God, I'm in trouble. How the hell am I going to get myself out of it? It's putting yourself as well as the people around you in a position to succeed. And through balls are similar to that too. Are they going to be offside? Are they going to get blown up by the goalie? Do they have space to operate? Okay. Favorite play and favorite play for yourself. So one that anybody could do. And then one that when you're playing, and if you still play, you know, everybody goes and plays pickup. What do you do to get a bucket? What's your go-to? Okay. So first of all, I did not develop a shot for a long time. I really leaned on, you know, my speed and my smarts, to be quite honest with you. Um, my defense oftentimes just turned into easy layups. So I do love kind of like a backside trap coming off a double where a player is looking to kind of spin to turn into the paint. And then you come across from the weak side, take the ball out of their hands, and then you're like off to the races. So I do really love that. It's easy money. It's like finding $10 on the street. You're just like, Oh, cool. Thanks cash. Um, <laughs> and what was the other question? What do I favorite play? Favorite play like, see? Yeah. Oh, probably an alley-oop, but. I wasn't really part of any of those. <laughs> I was more a part of like an alley and then like a touch layup. <laughs> the Raptors, they haven't done it yet this year, but in the playoffs, I remember they had a Spain pick and roll that would turn into an alley-oop for OG. And it's mm -hmm. just like, that's one of my favorites to see as well. It's a beautiful play, but I'm glad you pinched in, you dig down. The Fred Van Vliet comparison grows stronger by the minute, I think. I know it's true. Maybe not as heavy hands, but even still you got to be able to type he's not uh he's not writing stuff for a living or anything like that not yet Smashing i feel like fred's keywords. gonna be like a really good analyst or something like i think if he wants to fred has a career in media when he's done playing which hopefully won't be for a while um because he just balances he has the perfect balance of just keeping it real and honestly being unabashed for the way that he feels. Like if you hear him talk about all-star, he's like, yeah, I think I'm an all-star. Yes. I have been playing up to the ability of an all-star. Do I live for it? Am I going to die if I'm not? No. But why should I discount my achievements? And like, mm -hmm. that's so refreshing. So take that kind of candid nature with his smarts, his intelligence and his experience. Mwah! Oh, chef's kiss. Yeah. Conscientious, eloquent, intelligent, measured. He's, his interviews are always insightful, I think, whether it's for something that's related to everyday life, how to deal with things in the pandemic, or just being, you know, 
candid, as you said, with something that might be happening on the floor. And, uh, you know, it's tough to get players to discuss like X's and O's with you, but Fred maybe gives, you know, reporters a little bit more of a nibble and, and he'll rib with guys back and forth. Like with Blake, he'll, uh, take shots at him, which is always good, but okay. So my question is you were a walk-on. I was not a walk-on and I didn't end up playing, but I went to ID camps and the craziest oh, thing. Excuse for- me. <laughs> Low-key flex. <laughs> anyway, the, the Juco guys who come from the mm-hmm. States and who are like 21, I think I weighed 145 pounds when I was 17 and when I was going to the, the CIS oh. camps. And that was so intimidating. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm here for a reason. I have to come play. Were you extremely intimidated just going into a walk-on? Was there somebody there who made you say, oh my God, I'm going to have to play for this team? Not really, because I was traditionally underestimated. Um, You know, I like this little white girl who would like come to play with pink scrunchies in her hair and like high socks with hearts on them. I'm like, hey guys, what's going on? And so oftentimes I had like a pretty... Um, easy defender that was checking me because maybe they hadn't heard about me or I was, cause again, I wasn't highly recruited. So I wasn't on anyone's radar um, and maybe fair. My work ethic was horrible. So that's fine. And valid probably. <laughs> However, um, generally speaking, when I've gone to camps like that, I have had a little bit of an easier time at the beginning. And then that allows me um, in a certain sense to feel comfortable because I, I honestly believe that in a lot of instances I rise to the occasion and I take those challenges personally and I really want to persevere. I definitely have the attitude, like, I don't care who you are. Like, you're just, you don't know what I have to offer as well. Um, but maybe in some of those cases, I was able to kind of ease myself in. Because have you ever heard of the um, the Toronto Stealth? It was like a semi-pro basketball team that played here. So I mm-hmm. played on that team. Um, but like the coach didn't like me. <laughs> he didn't think that I was worth anything. And so I never really played. I got to play like backup minutes. When our team was not good. We got blown out all the time. So I got to play like backup minutes against like the traveling U.S. team's subs. Um, so that was fun for me. <laughs> Just running all over the place. Have a, bu- a, buck lo- a bucket load of energy when everyone's gassed. Worked out well. And so something I think every athlete is asked and should be asked because you can glean important things from it, but is there things you learned in sports that you consistently apply to life outside of it? I mean, you're currently smashing it in a male-dominated, white male-dominated industry and doing very well. There had to be some walls that you had to overcome. I mean, what's, what's the situation for you? This is super cliche, um, but I think it, oh my God, getting choked up and emotional, um, <laughs> but I think it rings true where it's just like, don't let people tell you to a box. And I'm not talking about if your coach is like, Hey, I really need you to focus on your rebounding this game. It's really going to help the team. And you're like, no, I'm a scorer. I'm a pure hooper. I'm just going to stand outside of the three point line and, and shoot threes. They're like, we just really need you on the interior. What I'm talking about is someone who might look at you and be like, Ooh, yeah, I just don't know if like your ceiling's that high. And it's like, okay, cool. I've looked inward and I've taken stock of myself and I actually just don't believe you. Um, because at the end of the day, the most important thing is not necessarily 
being involved with like the biggest team or the flashiest name or in broadcasting, like the biggest network per se, like all that stuff is really wonderful. But more importantly than that is you want to work with people who believe in you. You want to work with people who kind of share your vision, who even if it's like a little bit quirky or crazy, they're like, you know what? I trust you. Let's see where it takes us and we can edit or review as we go along. And so I think with sports, that was the thing too. It was like, I might've been a little bit unconventional in the way that I found my success on the court or on the field, but I found a way to align myself with people who really believed in me. And so you have that leeway to grow and have a little bit of a longer leash. Unlike Nick Nurse's leash, who apparently has like the shortest leash in the world, depending on who you are. But really and truly just finding people that you like vibe with. It's super lame, but people that believe in you. And I think that that's literally all that matters. One of my favorite tweets that I put out this year was of, I'm not sure if you watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but when Dennis is bullying the kids in basketball and just acting as if that's, that's Nick Nurse. (laughs) But, <laughs> I don't watch it. I'm sorry. Um, oh, it's fantastic. It's, I feel uh, like I'm so sick of TV, though. Like, I, I like, been reading books and stuff now just because Netflix, I'm over it. You said low-key flex when I said tryouts. Saying you're sick of TV, I read books. That's a huge flex, <laughs> by the way. That's big-time flex. <laughs> Ashley talking PhD Esquire, you know. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay, so we're going to lean on your big brain for this because we're talking about application. You and I are both in the business of breaking down Raptors games after they happen. Mine in the form of a podcast. I've been doing it for years now. Took over from William Liu, who does a great job with Yahoo. You on TikTok, a, Mm. you know, almost phenomenon. They're growing in popularity. Your post game, your recap. How do you do it? How do you take a game, (laughs) some, some pop culture, some memes, and just blend it into... This is what happened tonight. Um, instinct? <laughs> I think that's probably the best way to put it. I think that, you know, when I'm trying to make them, and, you know, it's really nice that you say that you enjoy them because it was just something I was trying to do to create a little bit of a routine. As I said, I'm, like, super bored in quarantine, so I'm like, what can I kind of dive into? But um, I miss watching sports with people that I like. I miss watching sports at a bar with my friends. And so a lot of the stuff that I incorporate, I feel as though it's stuff that when something happens on the court, I like want to be able to like say it to someone. That's kind of like my, my guiding principle. It's like, okay, if something like makes me feel a way or gives me a reaction, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, um, I lean on those moments first and then also try and balance out like some actual basketball analysis maybe not as like x's and o's or as technical as um, you're able to be but um, bring that aspect into it too where it's like okay it's fun lighthearted, and this is how we as fans speak but as a broadcaster here are a few things that I found interesting or that I think you should look out for and costume changes how how high do you think the budget (laughs) how high do you think the budget can run on this thing I don't know. That was just like a funny thing that I tried to do. I don't really do a lot of skits. Maybe I'll do some more. I am going to do a TikTok about um, Top Shot, actually, because I got into a deep, dark wormhole on it last night and bought two, um, bought two moments. <laughs> okay, so Top Shot. What yeah. is something like outside of the graphics, because the graphics yeah. people are doing a bang on job, but 
is something of value being created or is the NBA just, have they figured out how to monetize their highlight system? Both. I think it's both because here's the deal. You can say that about anyone who collects anything. You can say that about sneakerheads. You can say that about stamp collectors. You can say that about people who collect Fabergé eggs. It's like, well, why do you care? Because I'm invested. Okay. I could, I'd be like, you paid how much for that little beanie baby? $5,000. I'll give you $2 at a garage sale and talk you down to 50 cents. Absolutely not. But people find value in it. And I think a lot of what's going on with Top Shot right now is a lot of um, momentum driving the value of it and the importance of it. I think one thing we do know about the NBA and NBA fans is once players are interested and once players are invested, people's curiosity peaks and they want to be involved with them. They want to be involved in that community. And Top Shot is a way to do that. You can message players, you can gift them moments, um, you can get involved in trades with them, like literally, quote unquote, face-to-face digitally. So it's just another avenue to kind of connect with the league and the players. Um, but it's absolutely insane. Like the premise of it, someone buying a John Morant dunk highlight for 35,000 actual real live dollars. That's crazy. The play, yeah. the moment. Okay. I'm not even joking. Like, not like straight up the moment that I bought last night on a whim has already increased in value 300% from 3am wow. yesterday. And that's literally just because I think people are like buzzing on it. I'm not here to be like, I'm investing in it. This is not like games, a uh, game shop for me, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's super intriguing to me. So I'm like, I'm very, very addicted right now. Yeah. I think the, the biggest difference obviously is that like the sneaker, the Fabergé egg, the highlight is digital. That's what makes it so interesting I know. to me is the possession it's of intangible. something digital. Like if Netflix was like six people get to own this movie, and then movies got traded around like that. That would be insane. But uh, <laughs> wow, 300%. I think that's, I've seen that a lot on Twitter as well. People are like, we're making money. And as no, soon as like, you say people that. People are making actual money. Yeah, crazy. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> anyway, that's so, my little segue to, to game yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so anything else, Raptors? Something that's interested you? Or we can just... Cut it off. Uh, anything on your mind you'd like to put on wax? Anything I put on wax? <laughs> what an old reference. Um, man, I think that I want to just do a little bit like of an ode to Kyle Lowry. We're hearing a lot of trade rumors surrounding him. I honestly don't know how long he's going to be here for. Um, I think there's validity to these rumors. At first, maybe it was just like, Fred Van Vliet was the shiny new point guard toy, but really discounting Kyle's, first of all, legacy and impact here. Um, I think that there's something to be said for the teaching element that he brings to these young guys, the support that he gives them to shine, him facilitating some of their major moments, and just really being that kind of security blanket that we're all familiar with, whether it was a soother, whether it was a stuffed animal, whether it was a blanket, like something that really holds a lot of value to you and gives you the confidence and the surety that us just as human beings are looking for. I think Kyle Lowry is that to a lot of the young guys on this team. So don't be so quick to discount him. Don't be so quick to be like, okay, cool. Get him out of here to Philly and bring us Ben Simmons. It's like, yes, but also intangibles. 
That's I, as, yeah. As somebody who I think, I think I had the first column that was saying Kyle Lowry should be in the hall of fame. I think I had the oh. first one. <laughs> but anyway, Kyle Lowry, I think I had the first column that came out that was talking about his hall of fame candidacy and why mm-hmm. he should make it. He has been and on, on many nights, especially at the start of the season, he's still the Raptors best player. He's still doing so many positive things on the floor at all times. If you put him in the all-star game, it becomes immediately a thousand times more viewable for the reasons that you listed earlier. And, you know, keeping your legends, keeping your icons is an important thing for franchises that, that can afford to do it. So thank you. Yeah. Oh my God. Sorry to interject. Like, the people who still want to hate Vince Carter, it's like, okay, cool. Also see a therapist. But if you don't at some stage accept your past, like you don't get to develop that rich, iconic history that the most memorable franchises in the NBA, which also permeate to the rest of the world, have. You need those guys. You need those stories, good, bad, and different. Like you have got to accept what someone has done for your organization and what that legacy means to not only the fan base, but the team. And Kyle Lowry, you're right, is absolutely one of those guys. You keep him if you can, I think. And if he, you know, says, I want to go elsewhere, then I think you respect it and you try and give him a place where he can go win again because he's Kyle Lowry. The goodwill he has is, it's huge, but Kyle Lowry feels like a good place to end the podcast. And uh, at the end of every podcast, the floor is the guest to plug, plug, plug away. <laughs> a book you like that you've read, that you think other people should read, your own work, floor is yours. Ooh, okay. A book that I like that I'm reading. Okay, I'm reading the Howard Stern autobiography, which is a little autobiographical, but then he includes some of the best and his favorite uh, interview moments. Um, So if you're familiar with Howard Stern, obviously he has changed done a 180 from what he was doing earlier in his career to now. So that's kind of interesting for me as someone who conducts a lot of interviews. Um, It's kind of like a masterclass, honestly, the way that he does his thing. Um, And then you can follow me on my socials, I guess. Uh, Twitter, it's at smartash, S-M-R-T-A-S-H. You can follow me on TikTok at docking A. That's okay. it. That's it, all I got. It, okay. <laughs> I don't have a lot to plug. It's just come, come follow me. Come along for the ride. Okay. So the last thing I have to ask, reading about Howard, how great an interviewer he is. Out of five Howards, how did I do? Three, four? What's the, what's the answer? <laughs> In terms of not offending me, it's like a seven out of five. So like you're already on a good path. I've done I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a three and a half. Don't take it personally. I feel like we can work on our chemistry. We can work on our banter. We just met, right? So this is like a first podcast date. So in terms of some of the first date experiences I've had, you're well, well above, <laughs> above board. <laughs> I'm glad. And uh, Poe, he, he enjoyed it as well. He sat in on it all. He, he gives it a 3.5 as well. So in good You're giving company. major um, Paris Hilton vibes right now with your laptop. Yeah, that's... <laughs> And that's also kind another of icon. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Icons. That's, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. So, listener, thanks for tuning in. Ashley, thank you so much for giving me your time. This was an absolute blast for me. I enjoyed your insights. I enjoyed your stories. And uh, yeah. Anything else? Thanks, Samson. Okay. <laughs> listener, whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day. And from me and Ashley, goodbye. 
At American Public University, we believe higher education is not one size fits all. That's why we offer 200 modern programs that build on your knowledge and fit your schedule. Because we believe universities should adapt to the needs of students, not the other way around. American Public University, within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com.